Before uh, Carol and I were married, uh, we continued on a tradition that had started since she was a, a little girl. And on Christmas, before we would open up any gifts, we would take out the Bible and we would open it to Luke chapter 2. And uh, now, uh, the first time that I ever read that out loud was in front of Carol's mom. Um, I kept thinking to myself, don't miss it up. Don't, don't say something stupid, Brian. Make sure you pronounce all the names right, okay? Uh, maybe you're familiar with the, the start of Luke chapter 2. It says this, in those days Caesar Augustus, I got through that name, okay? <laughs> issued a decree that the census should be taken in front of the, uh, taken of the entire Roman world. And this is the first census that, the, that took place while Quin, Quin, are you kidding me? <laughs> Why this guy was the governor of Syria, right? And everyone went to their town to register. So anyway, the, the tradition to read the Christmas story has continued now for 21 years of marriage with Carol and I, and hopefully it's going to be passed down to Ian and Isaiah and their families eventually. Luke chapter 2 is the traditional Christmas text. It contains the story of the birth of Christ. It's a version that everyone reads. It's the one that Linus reads in the Charlie Brown Christmas story, right? Um, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably familiar with that. You've seen it on Christmas cards. So we're not going into Luke chapter 2 today. We're going to save that for Christmas Eve. We're going to go into Luke chapter 3, actually, uh, today. So I want you to go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 3, the third book in uh, the New Testament. About, uh, oh, two-thirds of the way back in the Bible. If you turn there, you're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. The third book there. All right. Luke chapter 3 starts by telling us a story not about Jesus, but of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was this weird dude that was in the middle of the wilderness. And he, he calls out to the world that's around him. And he says, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. So I guess this story isn't too out of place for Advent because that's what the Advent season is all about. We are preparing ourselves for Christmas. We're preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. So let's read the first part of this story. And so I'm going to ask Maya Foster, uh, one of our refuge students, to come up and to join me to help me with this uh, this morning. All right. There you go. I think, uh, all right. So here we are. Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and Tecronitus and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, I knew it, I knew I was going to mess it up. <laughs> the... Uh, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Amen. Thank you, Maya. Good job. Prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist. Maybe these aren't uh, so abnormal for Advent after all. And because they're talking about peace. They may not look like they talk about peace. There's probably not a whole lot in here that you think is very peaceful. John the Baptist doesn't just communicate peace to us. And that's what we're talking about this second, second week of this Advent season. Uh, John the Baptist doesn't seem like he's the most appropriate image that comes to mind when you think of the word peace. He was weird. If, if John the Baptist were hanging out, let's say at McNaughton Park, right? And he came out of the woods wearing camel clothing and eating grasshoppers and calling for people to repent, we wouldn't ask him to baptize us. We'd call 911, right? There seems to be uh, very little that's peaceful about this man. When we picture peace, it's not some crazy guy in the woods. When we picture a Christmas peace, maybe the image that's in your mind is that Hallmark movie, you know, where the, the snow is gently falling on the idyllic town and the cute little baby is wrapped up in, in uh, snuggly clothes that never cries. Maybe it's a soft billowy white lamb being held by its shepherd. Not some crazy man screaming, repent, repent. But in reality, the message that John the Baptist preaches uh, that day is one of peace. John borrows it from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote this down about 700 years before uh, John and Jesus lived. And John is describing paths that are made straight, rough places that are being made smooth. It's an image of the day when Jesus comes back to earth, when everything is going to be made right. It's going to be a day of peace. But John doesn't use imageries of peace like we would call it. He doesn't use a, talk about a, a cooing baby or a soft sheep. He paints a picture of hard work. He paints a picture of repentance that leads to the peace of Christ. This is supposed to be the kingdom of God. See, when we picture the kingdom of God, our, our minds yearn for, to see it as peaceful, to see the, the kingdom of God as this easy and quiet place. But in reality, the kingdom of God, the peace of Christ, is only obtained when we have dirt under our fingernails and have the blood of the Savior saving us. So let's get into this together here. If you're taking notes, the first one here is the contrast of kingdoms. 
Luke sets the stage by describing uh, the current kingdom and the political powers in charge. He just starts there by, by naming all of them. He, he lists the, the governor and the emperor and various other political leaders. He even talks about the religious uh, leaders in the church of the day, those high priests. And I think that Luke mentions these political leaders because this is the avenue that people thought that the uh, long-awaited Messiah would enter into the world. For hundreds of years now, the Jewish people have been ruled by what they, or they had been ruled by this foreign government. Many times in their history, they have already suffered uh, from foreign rulers, Assyria and Babylonia, and, and most recently the Greeks and, and the Romans. And the Jewish people had become tired of waiting for the Messiah to show up. And they, they just wanted somebody to come and kick all of these foreign rulers out of their land. And they were tired of being a pawn for the Roman government. They thought peace on earth would come through power. They thought peace on earth would come through warfare or the law or at least someone with a whole bunch of clout. And after the political leaders comes a line drawn in that text. Maybe you can't see that line drawn in, in your text, in your Bible, but it's there. There's a line there in the middle of uh, verse 2. In fact, if you want to, just put a line there between where John is talking about the rulers of the world. And then it says, God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The kingdom of God is not entering through a political center, but seems to be coming from a place of the wilderness. The kingdom of God isn't entering through those with power, but he's, the kingdom of God is being introduced by a prophet with no clout whatsoever. And Luke chapter 3 doesn't directly uh, reference the birth of Jesus, but Luke chapter 2 did. Now, the Bible is put together in a very particular way. There are the authors uh, meant that it was meant something by the, the way that they ordered things in the Bible. Now, I wouldn't be smart enough to recognize it if I hadn't read it somewhere, but uh, Luke mentions the baby Jesus before the current human powers of the world for a reason. There's a literary rule here that Luke is following by mentioning Jesus first. When I was in high school, my dad was my high school English literature teacher. And I remember reading Shakespeare and Steinbeck and all of those things. And dad would point out to the class all of the literary nuances of the text, right? He would talk about the symbolism and the metaphors and the form or the rhythm of a particular piece that we were reading. And no one would understand, right? Nobody got it. In fact, all of my classmates would turn and stare at me as if I was responsible for my father. So it's a little weird for me to stand here and teach you about textual criticism of the Bible because my teenage self is sinking down in the pew right now, okay? But I think this is important for us to note. Luke is telling the readers, 
pay attention because the Messiah isn't coming the way that you envisioned it. He's already here. Luke is saying that God is not going to operate in the way that the world thinks that it should by shows of military power or violence or, or money or control. Things are going to be different now. And so number two, if you're taking notes, is John is baptizing people into a new citizenship. A couple weeks ago, we had that tremendous service uh, before Thanksgiving where 13 people were baptized. And we know baptism as this outward sign of what Jesus has done for us on the inside. And it's our public confession that Jesus is our Savior and King, that we promise to follow him all of our days. And the hearers, though, of Luke's original text 2,000 years ago were already familiar with baptism. Converts to Judaism were baptized. They were, there were already religious ceremonies involving water and being cleansed with water so that you could go to the temple and make the sacrifice. So the radical part of John the Baptist's message was not calling people to be baptized. It was what he was asking of the people that were being baptized. When I was in school, I had an opportunity to take a course just on Jewish rituals. And it was a rewarding class. We learned a lot about the, the things of Christianity today. Part of the class taught us about the Jewish heritage. I found this very interesting. Today we would preach to you that you don't become a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. We know that, right? We know that our relationship with Christ is our responsibility. We don't uh, step into faith because our parents were people of faith, right? Um, just because mom and dad might be Christian, we don't get that ticket into heaven ourselves. We decide for ourselves whether or not we're going to follow Jesus. But in the Jewish faith, the succession of faith is passed through the maternal side. In other words, you are automatically considered a Jew if your mom was Jewish. So it would be easy for them to fall into, uh, you know, a lackadaisical view of their faith. You know, I'm already Jewish. My family is Jewish, so I'm Jewish, right? Until this day. Until John shows up on the scene, listen to what he says to people. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, he said, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share the, with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. 
Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content in your pay. He told these people um, that thought they already had an inn uh, whose parents were Jewish, whose ancestors were Jewish, who thought that they just had an inn already, that they needed to completely change their hearts and minds, that that was not enough for them. They need to repent for their sins. And this act of repentance was meant to lead to a very significant change in the way that people lived. John was turning everything around. John was saying, it's not enough to say that you believe. It's not enough. It's not enough for you to be born into it or to have some family legacy or some heritage to fall back on. Because look who is coming to be baptized. In the crowd were tax collectors and soldiers. The tax collectors had been hired by the Roman government to collect taxes. That's why we call them tax collectors. It's pretty brilliant, isn't it? So, but if you lived back then, you'd owe taxes to the government just like we do today. But uh, say you owed $100 to the government. The tax collector could charge you whatever he thought you should pay. So if you owed $100, he might charge you $150. And he would just pocket the extra 50. And so John is telling all of these guys, knock it off. Quit being dishonest. Who are you to come here to be baptized as a Jew and then you're going back out into the world and you cheat people? You're giving us a bad name, you snake. That's what he called them. Soldiers were the powerful arm of the Roman government. So John told them, knock it off. Quit harassing people. You need to act like a responsible human being. You need to recognize that the people that you are being violent towards and using force on and overstepping your authority are people just like you. So quit being a bunch of jerks. And John is baptizing people not just into this new faith, but he's telling them what to do with their faith. Because who we follow should change our behavior. You should be acting differently. He's saying, don't come into this river and be baptized and then act like nothing happened. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of the world. And there's different expectations on, on us. The same is true today, isn't it? If we're Christians, the world should know that there is something different about us, period. There should be a radical difference in the way that we behave towards humanity compared to those that don't know who Jesus is. Not because we're better than anybody, but just because we follow a better example. Do you know the most dreaded shift for a waiter or a waitress to work? Sunday afternoon after church. Why? Because Christians have the reputation of being the most entitled, 
the crabbiest and the stingiest of all customers. That's not the difference the world should see, right? I'm going to say this and force some of you to go home and eat leftovers today. But here it goes. If you go out to eat today, tip good. Tip extravagantly. Treat her like the daughter of the king like she is. That should be how we should be known. When I would go out to eat with our former district superintendent, Dr. Crawford Howe, he would, he would often ask the, the waitress, hey, we're going to be praying here in a little bit. So uh, is there something that we can pray for you about? And I have seen waitresses break down in tears in the middle of Red Lobster just because somebody cared. The staff at the restaurants that he and Sylvia, his wife, would, would frequent considered it a privilege to wait on Dr. Howe. Not only did they get a good tip from him, but they met a friend and somebody who cared for them. The world should know that you and I are Christ followers. We should bring the spirit of peace with us wherever we go. God is expecting for peace to be on this earth, but he expects us to do the work. And so if you're taking notes, number three is peace on earth means movement in the body of Christ. Let's look back at verse four where John quoted the prophet Isaiah. He said, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all, God's, all people will see God's salvation. When we think about peace, we don't think about an earthquake, but that's the type of image we're getting from this scripture here. God's about ready to shake things up. When we think about peace, we don't imagine somebody with sandpaper smoothing out a, a piece of wood, but that's the image that we're getting here. Rough places are going to be made smooth. The new image of the kingdom of God requires action and movement. God didn't send some power-hungry military king like people expected. He sent a baby for crying out loud. How far away from the expectations of the world can you possibly get? You want to build God's kingdom, then first start repenting for the things that you've done wrong. If you want to build God's kingdom, then you have to make some things right. If you want to build the kingdom of the most powerful king that has ever lived, if you want peace, then get ready. It's coming, but it won't be like you expect. The kingdom of peace that we're talking about on the second week of Advent is not passive. Peace is not a quiet sleeping baby or this peaceful fluffy lamb. Peace is not passivity. It is not us doing nothing. The peace of God is coming. The peace of God is available. The peace of God is expected. But the peace of God is going to come through painful works 
Let me explain. Before you think that I've gone off my rocker this morning, maybe too late, I don't know. (laughs) When you and I talk about peace, we might refer to the leveling of the playing field, right? Where everybody is equal. We're going to revisit that a little bit. If the ground isn't equal, it means that injustice is happening. And if there is injustice, it means that there isn't peace. That is part of the kingdom of God. All of us are on a level playing field. All of us have equal opportunities to the kingdom of heaven. All of us have an equal opportunity to the Savior in Jesus. All people should be experiencing justice. And John is telling the people to share what they have with one another. A kingdom of peace which people have what they need. A kingdom of peace where justice reigns. A couple weeks ago, our church had the opportunity to take uh, 160 Thanksgiving meals to people around Pekin. And in the grand scheme of things, 160 turkeys is not going to end world hunger. It will have nothing to do with the poverty of Pekin. Except that 160 families don't have to worry about where that Thanksgiving meal came from. I've had the opportunity to meet with our area school superintendents and our chief of police. Great conversations we've had about how we as a church can connect with our community. And a PFN is going to live out our values where we are known and valued and purposed. We need to be known in our community. Now, we don't do that for name recognition, but we do that because the kingdom of peace that Jesus came to establish is going to come through us. The hard work needs to be done by us. PFN Network extends into Washington and into Peoria because we see our calling as bigger than Pekin and Tazewell County. Our Southside Community Center exists to transform that community one relationship at a time. And so uh, SCC and Pastor Irene and Austin and uh, the rest of the PFN Network Believe that healthy kids make healthy families, which creates a healthy community. One kid at a time. One mom at a time. And if we're going to be here and talk about ending injustice and making sure people have what they need, I need to be known of living out that type of life. Right? And so do you. We can't expect peace if we're not providing for those that are less fortunate. We can't expect peace if we're not seeking to end injustice. We cannot expect peace if those that follow Jesus aren't the peacemakers. This is the kingdom of God that we're talking about. The one that moves in actions towards other people. The kingdom of God looks like that person that's walking with somebody on their crooked path and helping them to straighten it out. 
It looks like that sandpaper that's smoothing out all of the rough places and the things that people are going through so that their life isn't such a struggle from day to day. Last week, Cheryl preached about hope and taught us that hope of God comes after sacrifice. It becomes, it becomes after uh, surrender to God's plan. So does peace. The kingdom of God, our kingdom of peace requires a fair amount of sacrifice and repentance in our life. So number four, the kingdom of peace enters into our broken world through ordinary people. John the Baptist was not some worldly leader. He was this wild man in the wilderness that preached about repentance, preparing a path for Christ. The crowd seeking to be baptized were ordinary people that knew there was something more to be had out of life. They were instructed to get busy if they expected the kingdom of peace to come in their life. The tax collectors at the time are viewed as the worst sinners, yet they're called to a new way. The soldiers were caught up in, in the Roman Empire, yet they sought something new, something different. And we are called to work as well, to repent to be transformed so that we may fulfill our purpose in the kingdom of God. See, being a peacemaker is not going to be an easy task. Peace is not the image of a sleeping baby or that fluffy lamb. You know what real peace looks like. You've seen it. It looks like a hardworking parent that vows to break the cycle of abuse that they were brought up in. And doing the hard and soothing work of counseling so that their child could grow up in a better home than they did. Peace looks like the civil rights leader sitting at the counter and singing this little light of mine. Peace looks like the grandmother that's on her knees night after night praying for her neighborhood. Peace looks like people getting dirt under their fingernails because they planted a neighborhood garden. Peace is the friend with a 24-hour availability, no matter what their friend needs to talk about. Peace is the accountability partner walking along someone so that their path can become straight. Peace is church members opening up their homes in hospitality with never expecting something in return. Peace is hard everyday moments of working for justice. And that's what brings the kingdom of peace. If you are following in that devotional uh, that we uh, talked about last week and some of you are waiting on still, you would read this. The path toward peace isn't easy. The path toward peace isn't smooth. The path toward peace is risky and takes courage and challenges the broken realities of the world. For peace to come, we must get into the hard work of aligning a world made crooked by sin with the straight paths of the kingdom of God. For peace to come, there is creative work that makes valleys of despair into mountaintops of hope. 
For peace to come, there is repetitive work that sands away the injustice to bring about smoothness of equity. Without the work, without the challenge, and without upsetting the status quo, peace will not come. Our teens read that, those very words when they lit the Advent candle. But let's work with dirty hands until we see peace in our families. Let's get busy until we see peace in our streets and in our community. We work so that the world might know that the ultimate peace does not come from kingdoms or powers of this world, but it comes from the very heart of God. See, I believe the kingdom of peace is at hand, but God expects you and I to be the peacemakers. He expects something different from us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your challenge today to go into our communities to have dirty fingernails, to have a 24-hour availability for our friend, to do whatever it takes to straighten out somebody's crooked path or to smooth out the rough place that they're going through. That, Lord, is peace. And thank you for calling us to do it. I imagine that right here in this sanctuary that some of us have a situation that a friend or somebody is going through and your Holy Spirit is speaking to us today. I need you to do this. I need you to take care of that for them. They don't need to worry about that. You can provide that. So Lord, would you challenge us? Would you use us to bring peace on earth. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.